thinking could have been the long-term meditation and imagination of his heart. It could have been it just caught him by surprise one evening. We do know that it was a warm evening, a beautiful evening. It was the spring of the year. It was, the Bible tells us, the time of year when kings go forth to war. But the king didn't go. On this particular evening, evidently to enjoy the fresh air of spring as the sun was setting, he made his way to an upper deck of the palace where there is an overhanging patio and there leaning against the railing, he watched his neighbor's wife with a lethal lust. There was an affair that ensued and she became pregnant. I can't imagine that he had this thing planned out. I, I think he must have over and over asked himself, how did he ever get to this place? She had a really strong husband. He was one of King David's finest commanders. He was not a Jew. He was Uriah the Hittite. David, in his scheming and in his desire to save face, calls this general home from the heat of battle in the front line of battle. And this man's integrity surfaces and his commitment to his men was such that he refused to enjoy the pleasures of home while his men were on the battlefield. So he slept on the stoop outside the door of his house. The king realizes that his plan is not going to work to be able to foil this pregnancy. Sends back word as Uriah heads back to the battlefield. Uh, a dirty, rotten, low-level scheme to literally have his be- one of his finest men murdered on the battlefield. In the heat of battle, orders were given They pull the enemy towards them. Then they retreat without him knowing there was a retreat in play. And he's slaughtered down and cut down on the battlefield and killed. So that now the king can marry the neighbor's wife. It didn't go well for him. We know that uh, upwards of a, a year went by. He recorded, after he came to his senses, King David did, he recorded for us some insight in Psalm 32 and in Psalm 51, what he must have been thinking. You see, it says there, blessed, he said, is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You see why he picked the word deceit? Because he was a deceiver, a murderer, and an adulterer. And he knew, he knew that the most enviable position a person could be in is when their sins are covered and they're right with God. And he was not right with God. And he had a guilty conscience. He said, when I kept silent, Psalm 32, 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, my bones wasted away. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
He evidently lost significant weight. He became unhealthy, all from a guilty conscience. Have you been there? There is that sin feeling. There's that core, central, heart of the matter. You can't do anything about it and you wonder why I even got in this position and now I'm here and I cannot relieve myself of the guilt and all kinds of bad things happen and sin consumes. If that's you today, this is a really important message. And even if it's not you today, it's a really important message because as we turn to Hebrews chapter 9, I want to leave David right there for now. We'll pick him up later. You need to know that the writer of Hebrews is going to give us insight about what it means to have a clear conscience and how it is exactly we can come to a place where we have a clear conscience before a holy God. And after all, our position before a holy God is really the only position that ultimately matters. We're in Hebrews chapter 9. If you're newer to us, we have been making our way through Hebrews last spring and fall. We skipped the summer and then we had a a break for Thanksgiving and Christmas series and then our New Year's series. And now we're picking up Hebrews. We're in chapter 9 and I'll not take time to really review the book. Uh, You just need to know that the author is somewhat of a mysterious guy. We don't know who he is. We know that he knew his audience very well, and his audience is a group of evidently Hebrew believers who had come to Christ and yet were through persecution that was arising and uh, even just that draw to go back to the old ways. Some of you know that feeling. Somehow you want to go back to the old ways. Their old ways were Judaism, the structure of religion, externals, prayers and rituals and sacrifices. And it made them feel clean when they shed the blood of an animal. The writer of Hebrews is writing to exhort them and to encourage them and to inform them that there is nowhere to go if you walk away from Christ. The title of our series kind of captures it. It is the supremacy of Christ. That's what Hebrews is all about. Some of you will recall that he begins right away. He wants them to know that there's a, that God has spoken in this later age now in a new way. And, and this Christ is even greater than the prophets who spoke before. And he's greater than Moses and he's greater than the law and he's greater than Aaron and he's greater than angels. There are several specific sections where he stops and he exhorts And we're coming off of that exhortation in chapter 6. It was a tough passage. It was a tough exhortation. And then he enters chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. And it's a long message. And it has some themes to it. In chapter 7, if you want to turn the page, I don't know what it says ahead of your chapter heading there that was added by the publisher. Mine says, the priestly order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, the theme of chapter 7 is the writer is trying to convince these people who are so impressed with the priesthood of Aaron and the ritual that was taught in the Old Testament and all that went on with it. He's trying to convince them that this Christ is a priest of a different order. He calls that order the order of Melchizedek. You'll have to go back and listen to those messages. But that that order is greater than the order of Aaron. The priesthood of Christ is like the priesthood of Melchizedek. It was appointed directly by God. And 
He's even greater than the priests of Aaron, and that's chapter 7. And then, and then we get to chapter 8, and he wants them to know that, that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, and this new covenant that Christ is mediating is a greater covenant than the covenant that Moses mediated with God or that God mediated with Moses. And now their heads are about to explode. There's no greater prophet than Moses. There's, uh, you know, th- this is their hero. This is the one who God spoke through. This is the one that the angels delivered the law to on Mount Sinai. And you're telling me that this Christ is greater? Yes, Christ is greater. The new covenant is greater than the old. And then when we get to chapter 9, he's even going to take it a step further. And he's going to say, look, not only is there a priesthood that is higher and better and richer than the priesthood of Aaron. Not only is there, not only is there a new covenant that far surpasses the old covenant, I want you to know, the writer says, that there is an invisible tabernacle or temple tent tabernacle. There is an invisible one in the heavenlies made by God that is greater than the earthly tabernacle. And they all go, oh, really? Well, they don't really believe him. They love their tabernacle. The temple itself was patterned after it. That was the place of worship. That's where God met man. You're telling me that this earthly tabernacle is overshadowed by another priest and another tabernacle in the heavenlies? It's exactly what he's saying. And then finally in 10, he's going to talk about the fact that of all the sacrifices that they so depended on, for the forgiveness and the covering of sin, that there is an ultimate sacrifice that once for all covers all their sin. And so the writer is going into significant theological detail and historical detail. And it's a little bit hard for us uh, through which to wade, but this passage in 9, I want you to listen closely. Our text is 1 through 14, and it's it's the essence of the secret to a clear conscience. We need to know this. It's been our practice to have our young people who on their Bible quiz team were memorizing Hebrews last year. Um, they are memorizing, there's about 35 of them memorizing John, the Gospel of John this year. A couple of them have held on to specific chapters uh, so that we could continue our practice from uh, previous months that when we cross the threshold of a new chapter, we have one of our high school young people come, sometimes it's junior high, and they come and they quote the chapter in its entirety for us. Our, our, um, in our team coming today is Katie Skinner. She's going to recite for us and share God's word with us. This is Hebrews chapter 9. Katie, thank you for being prepared today. Katie, what grade are you in? Um, I am uh, in 12th grade. 12th grade. It wasn't supposed to be a hard question, Katie, okay? <laughs> All right. And um, thank you for being prepared today. And um, speak right into the microphone here. You're memori- you've memorized it in the New King James translation. Let's follow along in our copy of God's word. Let's hear God's word. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant was dedicated. <laughs> then indeed, even the first covenant was dedicated. Um, Somebody else has to help, or I have an ESV. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. 2. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstead, the table, and the showbread which is called the sanctuary. Three, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Four, 
which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Five, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Six, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. Seven, but into the second part, the high priest went alone, once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance. Eight, the Holy Spirit, indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Nine, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Ten, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Eleven, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Twelve, not with the blood of bulls and goats, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Thirteen, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, fourteen, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead, uh, from dead works to serve the living God? 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What verse am I on? You're on uh, 15. Fifth. You haven't got to 16 yet. 16. (laughs) For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. 17. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. 19. Now. When Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. 20. Saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. 21. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 25. Not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place once a, uh, 
once a year with the blood of another. 26. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 28. 27. (laughs) Not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place. Yeah, twenty-seven. Tra- I shouldn't try tracking with you. <laughs> they flip it. Go ahead, twenty-seven, twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. Um, so Christ, Christ, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, for um, for the redemption. For the <laughs> so Christ was so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly. Wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Katie, thank you. Thank you, Katie. If I'd have left you alone, you'd have done better there. I was uh, tracking with you, and I thought I knew where we were. The, the uh, ESV and New King James were sometimes very parallel and sometimes very different, and I apologize for that. Well done, Katie. Thank you so much for being willing to do that. Well, as we um, now approach chapter 9 in earnest here for our message time, I want you to see that the, the writer is going to open up with a word picture. If you're looking at your notes, it'll be help you to, helpful for you to follow on, follow along. And the word picture is that of the tabernacle and some of the furniture items that are in the tabernacle itself. Now, one of the things you need to understand is that when he's writing these Hebrew believers, all he had to do is to mention these things and they could picture them in their mind very clearly and very accurately. Let's look at the text and let's reread the first five verses. Now, even the first covenant in the ESV now had regulations for worship. Okay, he's comparing the first and second covenant and he's segueing in and he's moving into a word picture about the tabernacle. Even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent or a tabernacle was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence or the table of showbread and it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Here, having in this room the most holy place, verse 4, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, it was made out of wood but covered with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it, this Ark of the Covenant mounted to it and hovering over it were these gold figures, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. This is where God met man. And of these things, the writer says, though, we cannot now speak in detail. So he has just presented a word picture to the recipients of his letter. He said, look, when you go to the tabernacle, there's two rooms. There's the outer room, the holy place. Then there's the inner place, the holy of holies. He names some of the furniture that is there. But then he says, but I really don't want to talk about that. I just want you to picture that in your mind. You don't need more details. Just understand what I'm talking about. And then he's going to segue on. 
The problem with us, uh, though, even though we've grown up in Sunday school, is that we really don't know very well what he's talking about. And so it occurred to me that it would be beneficial for us to understand more of what he's talking about here by taking a look at the tabernacle and even understanding what in the world he's talking about. What is the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle, you need to understand, was designed by God after the heavenly tabernacle. He was designed by God and told to Moses, and he had very precise instruction, detailed instruction, by which he was to build this tent structure. It was, it was made of fabric, cloths, and animal skins, and it was made in the fashion of a tent with poles and guy wires and cloths. And it was where the Israelites worshiped. Now we're back in the desert, coming out of Egypt. The children of Israel are wandering in the desert. God has given Moses instruction on how to build this tabernacle. This is going to be the place that we worship. And I want you to build it just a certain way. You can read in Exodus chapter 25 through chapter 30 precisely what God told Moses about that. And they could move this portable tabernacle and worship area with them. Later on, we're going to realize that the very temple, Solomon's temple and later Ezra's temple, was patterned after the tabernacle. I thought it would be good for us to look at a few pictures and just look at the basic design. All right, so let's uh, look at a picture here. Um, we're going to back up a little bit. Now, our writer, beginning with verse 2, talks about this tent or tabernacle prepared the first section in which was the lampstand. Now, that what he's talking about is the top arrow of the holy place. And that was 15 feet wide, 15 feet tall, and it was 45 feet deep, the entirety. And that was actually the tabernacle. Now, if you were to approach this from a distance, what you would see is very white fabric walls that are 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. That was like an outer fence. It was to keep people from just trotting through there. It was to keep them out. And that was called the outer court. The outer court was open to all people who wanted to worship. They had to come prepared. And, and there, there were a couple of items uh, that we want to look at right now. I'm going to skip around a little bit on you, Aaron. But the first thing that you would find, and we're going to skip down to the furniture. We're going to do the basic design in the furniture in your notes at the same time. But the first thing in the outer court was the bronze altar. Take a look at the bronze altar. And this is where the outer court is. And the priests would be there to assist the people. But here, a head of a household or father could come in. He would bring animals with him. You notice the horns on the corner of this altar, and that's where there would be fire burning, and that's where they would kill goats and calves and, and, and so forth, and, and there they would offer up their sacrifices of different kinds. So it was the outer court, and this first altar is where sacrifices were made for the public to participate, all right? That's part of the outer court. In that outer court are writer of Hebrews in describing the implements of the tabernacle itself is not describing the outer court. He's just describing the tabernacle part, but also next to this um, altar, all right, this bronze altar, which was for all to offer sacrifices. You can read about that in Leviticus 1, 3 through 4. There was also a bronze laver, a bronze laver, and this was only for the priests in which to wash. They had to wash their hands and they had to wash their feet. 
Now, you need to start thinking a certain way here. You need to understand that all of this is very serious and it's very symbolic. God took it very seriously. The people took it seriously. Aaron and the priesthood of Aaron was in charge of all of this. And this is where they performed their priestly duties of interceding on behalf of the people. The people would bring their sacrifices to the brazen altar, but then off to the side in the outer court was this laver. And there they had to wash, the priests only had to wash their hands and their feet before they could go on and perform their duties. Now, if a general person of the public came in and washed their hands, they were to be killed. They were not to touch that. That was only for priests. And if a priest performed his duties without washing his hands and his feet, he was to be struck dead. God would strike him dead. He was unqualified and unfit and he was dirty. Listen, this is a picture of the awesome holiness of God and that he's not playing games. This is the system that the Hebrew believers would have completely understood. Okay, Now they still lived, many Bible students believe, before 70 AD when the temple was still in existence and the temple was patterned after this kind of thing. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But now back to our picture. Let's go back um, to the picture of, the, uh, of our tent. Okay, So we have the outer court. And then we have this room. It's a fabric room, as I already said, 15 feet wide, 15 feet tall. And the first section, the larger of the two rooms, is called the holy place. Now, our writer in verse 2, this is what he's going to begin to describe. So let your eyes go to the text for a minute. For a tent or a tabernacle, he's talking about just the, the tent itself, not the outer court, in which there was a lampstand and a table, and the bread of presence. That is called the holy place. All right? So let's go look at those pictures. Here's the lampstand, a picture of what the lampstand kind of looked like. All right? It was 75 pounds of gold, and it was shaped to look like almond leaves and almond branches. And there was specific instruction given in the Old Testament through Moses to the Israelites. And one of the things that it was their privilege and duty was to bring as an offering to the priests oil from their homes. And those priests would receive this oil. And one of the tasks of the priest was to keep this candle stand lit in the holy place perpetually. Morning and evening, they would go in and refill the oil. Now, remember, I said this is serious, but it's also symbolic. Now, who is the light of the world, ultimately? Our Lord Jesus. So really, what we have here is God giving a living illustration, both to the inadequacy of this system and ultimately to the ultimate light of the world. And this light never goes out. And so the Israelites would bring their oil, and the priests would refill the lamps. They would wash their hands so that they could go into the holy place. And it was their privilege to be selected for that week of service and that day of service to be in the holy place. Another thing that was in the holy place was the table of showbread. The table of showbread. This was a small table that had 12 loaves of unleavened bread on it, each representing the 12 tribes of Israel. One of the duties of the priest was every week to go in and replace the bread. Guess what they did with the old bread? They got to eat it. The priest got to eat it. They'd take it home to mama and 
make French toast or something. If they got to eat it, they, I made light of it. They would not make light of it. It was a very serious thing, but they would carefully, uh, if they didn't have to eat it, but they could, they could use it for their own sustenance. Who's the bread of life, by the way? Ultimately, our Lord Jesus is the bread of life. All right, now we're looking at our text here. We're describing the basic design of this. There's an outer court. There's a holy place open only to the priests. Only the priests could go in there. Now with our eyes over on our text again, verse 2, for a tent was prepared. That's what he's talking about. And there was a lampstand and the table of presence, the bread of presence or table of showbread. And that is called the holy place. Now verse 3, look at it in your Bible. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Now this section, no one went in except once a year on the day of atonement, there was a lottery among the priests and the high priest was selected. The priest was selected to go in a priest was selected to go in and there he could represent all of Israel with this special worship. On this day, this is the day when they, they had the ritual of the scapegoat. He would lay his head on a goat and that goat would be released into the wilderness and people would cheer and jeer and spit on it as it got out of town and they would let it go and it was representative of taking their sins far away where they couldn't see it. And all of these things happened and it was a great honor for a priest to be selected But only one day a year did a priest, and only by special selection and only by special preparation, would a priest go in the Holy of Holies. And if anybody ever went in that most holy place or that Holy of Holies, they would have been immediately struck dead by God. That is where God met man. Now, he says in verse 3, what is behind the circle? The behind, starting with verse three, behind the second curtain, this second section is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And verse four, he's describing it, having the golden altar of incense. Let's take a look at that. Here, the golden altar of incense was, all right, and it was a perpetual burning of incense that wafted up to the, to God. Okay. Some say that it represented the perpetual prayers of Christ. The, the intercessory, intercessory ministry ultimately of Christ is represented in the incense that continually burned and went up. Some say it represents um, ministries of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so now we're looking at basic design number three. This is the Holy of Holies, open only to a high priest once a year. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. In the outer court, there was the bronze altar for all, the bronze laver for the priests, the lampstand, the table of showbread was these two were in the holy place, number three and number four, if you're looking at the notes. And then this altar of incense, that's described in Exodus chapter 30, verse 6. But this is where there's a question about our text. It's interesting. Now, let's, let's let our eyes go back to the text. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant on all sides with gold He's describing what's in the most holy place. But what's interesting is that when God gave Moses instruction, and it's recorded in Exodus uh, chapter uh, 30, verse 6, this altar of incense in the Holy of Holies, it is not in Exodus 30 to be in the Holy of Holies. It was in the holy place. 
Some, some people will look at this and say, hey, 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 this guy got it wrong. He's writing about the altar of incense, describing it in the most holy place, the holy of holies. But the altar of incense was outside the curtain, right against the curtain in the holy place, according to the instruction of Moses. So what do you do with that? Well, I'm not 100% sure what to do with that. I mean, it's a tough question. Some people think that what the writer is talking about is that the incense is associated with the holiest of places there and that the scent in the smoke would go in there some. That was that thick veil that separated this. Some Bible students believe that on the Day of Atonement, when the priest who was selected to represent Israel by himself in the Holy of Holies would actually take the curtain and bring it around the altar of incense so that on that one day, the altar of incense was included in there. Others think there's a discrepancy between the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint and the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament and that they describe it differently and that the writer of Hebrews might have been dependent upon the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew Old Testament. And I'm not sure you can catch Willem Griffion in the foyer and he'll explain all this to you later and tell you exactly why they said it that way. One thing about it, don't let it doubt your scriptures because it is absolutely Though Moses described it outside of the Holy of Holies, it is associated with the Holy of Holies. And in the writer, in the writer's mind and in the Hebrew's mind, perhaps that altar of incense was associated with the Holy of Holies in that way by proximity. So I don't really know the answer, but I wanted to point that out. The Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies. Notice what he says. Now we're in verse 4, the end of verse 3. This place is called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, which we find out not everybody agrees that it would have been in there, but this writer associates it with the holiest of place, holy of holies. And the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered, made out of wood, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above that were these cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Let's take a look at this. This is, a, this is based on description only. It's a lost article. Nobody knows where it is. And it was made out of gold. And this is so sacred. And this was where God met. This is even one of its names is the mercy seat. That's where the cherubim, reflective of the very throne room of God in heaven. All right. Remember in the Old Testament, the story at the time of David, when they were moving, they were moving it and they moved it inappropriately. It was supposed to be moved on poles, on the shoulders of of priests. But they put it on a new ox cart. And when they put this Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart. They went over some rocky ground and it was looked like it was going to tip over. And the priest, in all good faith and good meaning measure, reached up to stabilize it and he was struck dead immediately. That's how serious this is. You got to do things God's way and not just anybody can touch this thing. There's another uh, question about the text here because our writer says that in which was a golden urn holding manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. In the Old Testament, uh, you'll see if you read it, read through, you'll notice that there it says that only the tablets of the covenant were in it. 
That would be the Ten Commandments that Moses was given by God. They kept that and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant. Then one day, remember, the people questioned Aaron's credibility. And so as a test for God to demonstrate that Aaron was his man, he had his old dry stick, walking stick that had been dead for years that he had cut from a stick. And you know, you have a favorite walking stick. Aaron was seen with his stick regularly, evidently. And he said, leave it there. By morning, the thing had sprouted almond leaves and almonds. So the dead stick had sprouted. That stick is associated with the Ark of the Covenant as well as a jar that they filled with manna. Now remember, this is portable. The tabernacle is portable. And so it's possible that the writer of the Hebrew, of Hebrews, when he says they are in the Ark of the Covenant, it's possible that when they moved the tabernacle that they would have put the staff, the walking staff of Aaron, the jar of manna in with the Ten Commandments to transport it. Otherwise, it was near it. Evidently, he was in it sometimes because that's what he describes. We just don't know. But what we don't know, the recipients of Hebrews would have understand clearly what he's talking about. By the way, I referenced that the tabernacle is the pattern of the later temple. Remember who built the first temple? It was called Solomon's temple, right? In all of its glory, God wouldn't let David build the temple. So after the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, this tabernacle, this portable tent was what they moved with them for their place of worship. When they got in the land and they went to Jerusalem, there Solomon built the temple, the glorious place of worship. But then you remember that the people sinned and Nebuchadnezzar came down from Babylon and he, he wiped it off. He knocked it down. Today at the Wailing Wall, there are some stone, part of the wall, part of the foundation of Solomon's temple. And that's what's, that's where the Wailing Wall is. That's part of the construction of Solomon's temple. But Nebuchadnezzar knocked the whole thing down. He took the Ark of the Covenant at that time. So then who built the next one? After they came back from the dispersion, after from the Babylonian captivity, who was it in our Old Testament that wanted to rebuild the temple and get it going? There's a book in the Old Testament named after him. No, no. Ezra, Ezra, Nehemiah built the walls that were broken down. Ezra started the temple, but then there were multiple construction projects. And at the time of Christ, the temple uh, would have maybe even some say, I think Josephus says, would have had scaffolding around it. They were working on it. Herod built additions onto it. And it's often called Herod's temple. All right. And when the time of the Hebrews of this book being written, it's likely that they had They had been to the temple or they worshiped in the temple. The temple was still in existence. But remember when Nebuchadnezzar came and wiped out Solomon's temple, the ark was stolen and it disappeared from them on. And there's then on and there's no record of where the ark is. It's lost at the new temple. When Ezra built the temple, I'm told that there was a stone slab placed in the ground in the holy of holies in the temple, that there was a stone slab representing right where the Ark of the Covenant would be. You know what it looks like today where the where Solomon and Ezra's temples were? Look at this. There's a Muslim mosque right where Solomon's temple was. It's called the Dome of the Rock. Uh, do you know that the Bible says that there's going to be a third temple built? And it's going to be an actual reconstruction. It's going to be an actual building 
there on the Dome of the Rock. So you know what that means? That means that this building has to go bye-bye. I thought it was going to happen back with H.W. Bush when they were flipping scuds out of Iraq. Remember that? I'd wake up and watch the news every day expecting one of those. Remember, they were just throwing them like a kid shooting a slingshot, and they were going all over the place. And I thought, I said to Janet, you watch and see, one of those scuds is going to pop the dome on the rock because it's got to go away. How's it going to go away? Well, some, one of these days, one of these missiles from Syria or something is going to take it out and you better watch it. You see, after 70 AD, when they wiped out, when the Romans wiped, wiped out the temple, remember that's the temple that Jesus said, tear it down. And in three days, I'll rebuild it. Not one stone will be left upon another. So when the Romans burned it and destroyed it, all the gold implementation of the temple melted, went down among the rocks. They took iron digging irons and pried the rocks apart and dug the gold out so not any rocks are together. And they've not had a temple ever since. And they've been scattered ever since. And now they've regathered starting in 1948 officially in our recognized nation. You see, Israel's still God's nation today. And they're going to have a new temple, but this one's going to have to go away. All right, did you kind of get all that? It took a long time. Our writer only took a few sentences to describe what was happening. So we're still with our message. It's not going to last as long as you think it is. And there's a really important point, so don't give up on me. You see, after a while, our eyes just kind of turn back in our heads and glaze over when all this stuff about the temple and the tabernacle. But I want you to see something here. I want you to see how sacred it was how important it was and how the recipients of Hebrews loved that. And they knew all about it. And it was a word picture that the writer paints. Okay, let's pick it up. Having the golden altar, verse four, the incense, Aaron's staff, verse five, above it, the cherubim, the glory overshadowing, the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. He doesn't really want to talk about this. We talked about it so that we could understand what he didn't want to talk about. But they understood exactly what he was talking about. Now watch closely. He moves from a picture to a problem. He wants to point out the problem with the tabernacle. He wants to point out the problem with the earthly tabernacle. These preparations, verse 6, having thus been made, everything he just described, the priests go regularly into the first section. That's what we just learned about, the holy place. Where the candlestick is, they have to renew the oil. They have to replace the bread. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he, but once a year. He's representing all the people of Israel, but only one man goes in there, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." Let's just stop for a minute and let's realize what the problem is. And this is the point that the writer is making to the recipients. So look, you love the tabernacle. You love the temple. You love your rituals. You love your externals. You love your sacrifices and you want to go back. But I'm telling you, the first problem is limited access, limited access. You can't even go in there. You can go to the outer court, but you can't even go to the holy place. And only once a year, the the priest goes to the holy of holies on behalf of the people. And when he goes, he has to take blood from an animal to show that something died for his own sin. 
And that he offers, verse 7, for himself, unintentional sins of the people. ESV, unintentional sins of the people. You know, you read about this in Numbers chapter 15. You don't have to turn it, but you might write it down. Numbers 15, starting with verse 29, listen to this. This is the instruction that Moses received from God. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. So you got one law, you got these sacrifices, and it's for unintentional sin. But the person who does anything, listen to this now, the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. When you intentionally sin, you are reviling the Lord. And he says, And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. So in the Old Testament, if you committed adultery intentionally, if you committed murder intentionally, what happened? Did you go to the priest and have a sacrifice that you could offer? No, it was an intentional sin. And God said, I gave you my word. I told you what to do. You didn't do it. And now you can die. Do you understand why David's bones waxed old within him? Do you understand why David pondering on his rooftop, why he let his eyes gaze? Because there was no sacrifice that could take care of his sin. The Hebrews would have understood this. Let's go back to it. Verse 7, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as we're under the old covenant and the first section is still standing, which is a symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that, look, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Look, you can do this, but you cannot get a clean conscience from it because you know the intentional sin of your own heart and your own mind. So not only do we have limited access, A, you're not even allowed in there, but B, you have limited forgiveness. You cannot, through the blood of animals, get a clean conscience. There is no sacrifice that is able to take away all of those intentional sins. We keep reading. According to this arrangement, let's pick it up again halfway through verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. That would be under the new covenant, under the new high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a new temple that is not an earthly temple or tabernacle. But he's going to repeat himself. Now he's a good teacher. Not only has he painted a picture for them to understand what he's talking about, but then he presents the problem. The problem with the old tabernacle is limited access, limited forgiveness. He now wants to make a contrast. See, but, word of contrast, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, you love Aaron, you love the line of Aaron, you love all the ritual, you love all the externals, you love all the repeated prayers, you love the feasts, you love to count beads, you love to go to church to the confessional. I'm telling you, You can't get a clear conscience from that. But when Christ 
appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, there's another tabernacle. Are you kidding me? Another something greater? Yes. Parentheses. This one is not made with hands. That is not of this creation. It's of the heavenlies. He entered once for all, verse 12, into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You got what he's saying here? First of all, I want to contrast, he says, this new high priest that you're trying to walk away from is superior because he operates in a greater tent. There is a new and greater tent or tabernacle. It's in the very presence of God himself. And this high priest has access to the Holy of Holies. He has access, this priest goes right in there anytime he wants. And he doesn't take the blood of bulls and goats. He goes in there and he sheds his own blood. What kind of priest is that? Now let's keep reading. Let's pick it up with 12 again. He entered once for all into the holy places. See, no more daily rituals, no more repeated sacrifice, no more annual day of atonement, but once for all, he entered the holy place, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? More will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. How much more does this purify our conscience? This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. That if the ashes of a heifer, if, if the blood of goats can cover this unintentional sin, but we have a high priest who offered his own blood and it's good to forgive all sin and it's a once and for all and done. That is what clears your conscience. Let's talk just a minute about the heifer. Everybody loves to talk about the red heifer. What's the red heifer all about? That was part of the day of atonement sacrifice and they had these, I don't know if they were purebred or what they were. Um, Willem can tell you about that too. They have this heifer and they would offer it as a sacrifice, and they would collect the ashes. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 19, if you want to make note of it. Numbers chapter 19 describes it clearly. And here's what they would do. They would collect the ashes from the red heifer from the Day of Atonement. Remember, the Day of Atonement is when the sins of the nation were covered, but it was temporary. But then what if the next day, the next week, the next month, you did something unclean, or if you touched a dead person or a dead animal, something unclean, that's what Numbers 19 talks about, you could go back to the priest and he had saved from the day of atonement ashes from the heifer, and there he would mix water and hyssop with it and stir it up, and he could touch you with it, put it on you, and it was representative then of your cleanliness, and it could take away your uncleanness. But it was still unintentional sin. Listen, when God gave the commandments... And he said, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not. There was no sacrifice that could cover that stuff. It was the death penalty. And he's saying, if you could get some temporary relief from the ashes of a dead heifer, how much greater is this 
permanent forgiveness that is in the blood of our priest, the Lord Jesus. Here is the cleansing of your conscience. So in contrast to the old, we have a new tabernacle. We have access to the Holy of Holies and, a blo- and we have blood that cleanses each and all and every sin, not just a covering of our unintentional sin. We can know the joy and the relief, he says to the Hebrews, of a clear conscience, not in ritual, but in Christ alone. We just sang it in Christ alone. Let's go back to David. He wrote two responses to his sin. Psalm 32 that I referenced earlier, and then Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, This is a familiar chapter to many. In Psalm 51, verse 16, look what he wrote. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Do you understand a little better why he wrote that? If there was a sacrifice that I could give to get the guilt of my adulterating lifestyle and the murder of my adulteress off of my conscience, I would give that. There is no delight in a sacrifice. There is no design or delight for God in a sacrifice, or he would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. It doesn't satisfy. These offerings are inadequate. But then he says, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You come to God with a broken heart, with a broken spirit, that's repentance. And there at the foot of the cross, you find that we have this priest who once for all offered a sacrifice with a blood that could take away all sin, not just unintentional sin. And he, this blood of Christ can clear your conscience. A lot of people deal with a guilty conscience. A lot of people try to hide it. A lot of people get sick over it like David and their bones wax old and their flesh dries up and shrivels up as they lose weight because they don't have an appetite because they loathe themselves over the sinful deeds they've done sometimes years and years before. Listen, through the blood of Christ, our high priest, you can run right into the holy of holies. You know, the holy place and the holy of holies was separated by that big, thick fabric. And that's why this is so significant when Jesus was on the cross and he would accomplish and right before he gave up the ghost, the King James says, right before he died, what did he say? It is finished. The plan of God is complete. And at that very moment, what happened to that veil between the holy place and the holy of holies? It split from the top to the bottom. There is now access. Why? Because we're not talking about the blood of bulls and goats. Now we're talking about the wonderful blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we can have a clear conscience. Why would you hold on to the garbage of the past? You got to understand this now. I don't know. You cannot, you cannot remove the memory of the pain that you have inflicted on people You cannot remove the memory of the absolutely, utterly unbelievable things that you've done that have created a guilty conscience. But you can remove all of that from the memory of God, and that's what really matters. You will be temporarily afflicted with some of the memory, but you got to put it in the perspective of seeing it through the eyes of 
God forgiving you, but ultimately God before whom we will answer and God who holds us accountable, you can have today an absolutely clear conscience. I would say some people would give a million dollars for that. It's free, my friend. It is by grace through faith in Christ alone, our priest who gave us access and unlimited forgiveness. Praise God. Let's stand and bow before the Lord. I don't know if you came in with a guilty conscience today, but know that the writer of Hebrews wants you to know that the ultimate and complete work of Christ is a conscious, conscience-cleansing agent. The blood of Christ is a conscience-cleansing agent. And now we run to the cross today. That's where the blood of Christ flowed. That's where all of this, the Lord Jesus, is seated there, and he welcomes us into his presence. Do you see how the gospel changes everything? Do you see how we have no other plea but the perfect plea of Jesus' blood and righteousness? Do you see how in Christ alone we have this standing? Put your faith and trust in Christ today. Have a clean conscience. Some of you believers in Christ are carrying around baggage that's unnecessary. Put it down once and for all and let the blood of Christ give you a clean conscience in front of your heavenly Father. So Father, we commit ourselves to you for another week. Should you tarry, we need your help in all of this. May your Holy Spirit make these truths real to us. Grow your church through this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Hey, we do need to stack the chairs today. Thank you very much for your patience and your good attention. God bless you as you go.